0: God has a plan. He has a plan for you and for me. That plan includes loving him and loving others. But for all of us, it's so easy to run away from God's plan, to avoid it completely. We get sucked into a life full of selfishness, pride, and rebellion. We focus on ourselves and what we want and what we think is best. But God is always in pursuit of us. God reaches out to us and offers us not a rejection, but an embrace. Not abandonment, but a welcome. This is the story of Jonah and God's relentless mercy. Hey, well, good morning. Welcome to Northridge Church. My name's Aaron Hickson. I'm our Henrietta Campus pastor Shout out to my Henrietta family. Love you guys! And whatever campus you're joining us from in the Rochester area or online, we're thrilled that you're with us in week two of our series, Relentless Mercy. We're just walking step by step through the book of Jonah. And uh, you know, I don't know if you've been around church for a while or not, but this story can be sometimes seen as a kid's story. But one of our goals in this series is to unkid it for you, because it really is a series that has something for all of us to learn. So you can turn to Jonah chapter two. On On page 754, if you're using one of our Bibles, and you can follow along with us there. Today, in this juncture of the story, we're going to be seeing what is Jonah's lowest point in life, his darkest point to this point. And I don't know if you've been to a low place before, but it seems like nobody comes out of their rock-bottom moment unscathed. When you go to your darkest place and you come out the other side, you can't help but be marked scarred by it or changed by it. And the lowest point in my life um, is something I want to tell you about, and honestly, you might think it's a little bit trivial, but uh, I don't think it was. And there are a few things you have to know about me as I tell you this. The first thing is that um, I like bread to be either white or wheat. I hate tuna in all of its forms. And I'm fairly certain that Satan himself invented the combination of mint and chocolate. Right? Yeah. I mean, obviously. Full agreement across all of our campuses. That's good to know. And so my lowest life experience was when I was visiting this couple years ago, older couple, um, having a good time, just enjoying their company. And the missus offers to make us a bite to eat for lunch. And I said, yes. And she said, okay, what kind of bread would you like for your sandwich and offers two options, rye or pumpernickel. (laughs) I should have just got, I should have just left right then. But I said rye, just praying that she was going to smother it in peanut butter to make that terrible flavor go away. Um, But that sandwich comes out covered in, you guessed it, fresh tuna and a single leaf of lettuce. It was revolting. I knew in that moment the Lord was testing my perseverance and my obedience because I was there as a prisoner in that chair, locked in. And because I was raised in a good home, I will tell you, I ate every single bite of that revolting sandwich. And then she offers us some ice cream to wash it down, and I bless the Lord of heaven for his great mercy to me, where I could wash down that flavor, and I ask for an extra scoop of whatever sweet goodness she was doling out. And then what to my wondering eyes should appear but a great heaping bowl of mint chocolate chip ice cream. Mint tingling, to be specific. And I honestly stand before you today saying that I ate every ounce of that dreadful concoction, and I have never been the same. Oh, I came out of that house a changed man, people. I've been to the bottom, and I will never return. (laughs) Now, okay, I'm being ridiculous, um, but I had to tell a funny story because the rest of this message is basically depressing, so... um, But we all, know, we all know what a rock bottom experience is life, whether that's from our own experience or from watching someone else's life. Um, and this is absolutely that moment in Jonah's life, and we're going to look over it together. So we're going to jump in, but let me give you some background as a reminder. Um, Jonah is a story written by a prophet about a prophet. So it's Jonah's written by a prophet about a prophet. A prophet was a spokesperson for God to the nation of Israel. Israel is God's chosen people, and he would send them spiritual leaders who would tell them what God thought that they needed to hear. But Jonah, this time, he doesn't preach a message. This time, his life was the sermon. And let me tell you, it is not pretty. <laughs> this is not a pretty sight. And Last week, we saw kind of as a summary in chapter one that Jonah runs and God pursues. That's the whole summary. Jonah runs, God pursues. God asked Jonah to go and preach a life-saving and time-sensitive message uh, to a group of people that Jonah hates, and Jonah says, no way, and he runs in the opposite direction to the farthest place he could think of on a map, but God isn't having that, and so he arranges circumstances such through a storm that Jonah, we left him last week where he had just gotten tossed from a sinking ship into the Mediterranean Sea. That's where we left him, and that's not a great moment. But it's about to get worse. (laughs) Uh, Our goal for this week is to cover chapter 2 of the book of Jonah. And I would summarize this chapter in this way. That God disciplines and Jonah repents. That's kind of the summary for chapter 2. Is that God disciplines and Jonah repents, kinda. All right, God disciplines and Jonah repents, kinda. That's the big picture of what's going to happen. Well, actually, it's not even the big picture. It's the whole thing. (laughs) The entirety of this narrative is in one verse... And they didn't even have the decency to put it inside of chapter 2. They dropped it at the end of chapter 1, verse 17, where it says this Now, the Lord provided a huge fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. So, if you're looking for the narrative action in this chapter, there it is God sends a fish, it swallows Jonah, he's in there for a little while, and then he's out. That's the whole plot line that we need to cover today. But again, that's not even from this chapter. The entirety of chapter 2 that we're going to be going over today is actually a poem or a song that Jonah wrote in the midst of all of this craziness, which is weird. Who writes, who writes a poem in the middle of all that? But we'll, we'll get to that. The basic premise is God disciplines and Jonah repents. But just because this is a short story in terms of what needs to happen doesn't mean that there isn't a lot to learn. So let's jump in. Let's look again at chapter 1, verse 17, if you'll look with me. It says this, Now the Lord provided. Okay, so stop right there. We've already got something to learn. These words highlight a theme throughout the book of Jonah that Drew actually brought up last week, and that is that the Lord provided. All throughout this story, we're going to see examples of God intervening in order to set Jonah up for what was next in his growth journey. The storm that kind of get all this rolling, God sends that. The fish that gets involved in this chapter, God provided that. And the name of this series is Relentless Mercy because God is relentlessly pursuing Jonah with circumstances that are going to set him up to grow. Now, almost 100% of the things that God sends into Jonah's life are hard things, which might not be what you're expecting, but we're going to address that tension today. But the point we cannot miss is that God is the one who is behind this. He's actively involved in every detail and he refuses to let Jonah get away with running away without first acting on his behalf. So let's keep moving again through 117. Now the Lord provided a huge fish to swallow Jonah and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Now if you didn't grow up in church and you hear that, then this verse will send you way over the top with your skepticism meter because you're like, Really, do they actually believe that this guy stayed alive underwater inside of a fish for three days? This is ridiculous. And I get that. It does sound crazy, and and we'll talk about why that's the case. But for those of you who did grow up in church, I have something exciting to tell you, something you've always wanted to know, and that is that I have definitive proof about what kind of fish this was. Yeah, it's pretty exciting, you've been wondering. In fact, I have all the evidence that you're going to need right here in this box, Just kidding. There's absolutely nothing in that box, okay? Because there is absolutely no evidence about what kind of fish this is. We don't know anything. Jonah apparently doesn't think we need to know anything more about what kind of fish this was than it was just a great fish. And yes, that box is just sitting there so that I could make that joke. Seriously. I think it's important That we not get caught up in all of the biology questions we have about what kind of fish whale this was. I mean, it could have been a huge perch from Lake Ontario, for all we know. We don't know anything. Clearly, Jonah didn't think we needed to know any more. Because, get this, the fish is not the point. The fish is not the point. Like, we may even have to repeat that all together because it's that important. We should never have gotten fixated on what kind of fish this was. It's just a footnote. We've gotten distracted by our curiosity. We're asking, like, how did he have oxygen inside of the fish? And wouldn't the digestive enzymes have deteriorated his skin? And what kind of whales are native to the Mediterranean Sea that would be able to swallow a human whole? Like, these are not relevant questions, okay? It's just not the point. What we have on our hands here, people, is just a good, old-fashioned miracle. That's it okay? It's not that complicated. A miracle is an event that defies the laws of physics and biology and logic, and God has the capacity to do that. But if that freaks you out, let me just tell you, it's going to get worse, because our faith is based around a number of miracles that are not only harder to pull off, they're more important to our faith. There was this other guy who went through a really difficult thing and then spent three days in a dark place. Um, His name was Jesus. That's right. Uh, he spent three days being dead after being tortured to death by Roman soldiers, which he predicted in advance, and then he came back to life. So not only is that harder to do, it's the foundation of our faith. So if we can't get on board with the fish miracle, we're going to struggle with Christianity because it's all based around a miracle. All right? Um, Don't let the fact that this is a miracle freak you out or drive you away from the point of the story. The fish is just a tool of God's mercy And of his discipline, it's just a tool. That's it. We'll talk more about that later. Enough about the fish, okay? (sighs) I got it off my chest. Let's jump into chapter two, and let's see what this poem has for us to learn. In fact, my plan is to walk through this entire song or poem, uh, kind of verse by verse, and then we're going to circle back at the end and just point out a few significant lessons that I think we need to catch for our everyday life. So I would challenge you, try to pick out these lessons as we go. Uh, see which ones you think I miss. I'm sure I miss some. Uh, engage your mind with this section of the Bible as we walk through it together, and I think we'll find some lessons. It's going to be a lot of information. I'll admit that, but I think you can hang. So let's do this. Let's jump in. Um, let's dive in, pun intended. There's <laughs> going to be plenty more of those. All right. Got to keep it light. Here we go. Chapter 2, verse 1. From inside the fish, Jonah prayed to the Lord his God. Now, I want you to picture that. Okay? Jonah is inside of the fish. And that's so important. It's incredibly relevant to what we're going to be talking about, but it'd be super easy to miss. I say that because I have missed it many times in reading this before. Jonah writes this song, From Inside the Fish. All right, that's important. Let's look at Jonah chapter 2, verse 2. It says this. Here's the song. In my distress, I called to the Lord and he answered me. From deep in the realm of the dead, I called for help and you listened to my cry. Now, that sounds interesting to me on a few levels. The first thing I want to notice is that uh, if you're a Bible nerd, this kind of sounds familiar, right? If you've if you're been around the Bible, that kind of sounds like the Psalms, doesn't it? The way that that sounds. In fact, let me read Psalm verse 120 verse 1. It says this, I call on the Lord in my distress, and he answers me. That sounds super similar, right? Like he would need a footnote if he were writing a paper because he's quoting, And this whole prayer mirrors very closely a whole bunch of quotations from the book of Psalms. It's almost as if Jonah, in this fish, in this awful situation, the thing that comes to his mind is the parts of the Bible that, as a prophet, he had spent time studying and singing. That's really interesting to me. But the second thing that stands out to me about that verse is something that you've probably already forgotten. I know that I had. Jonah is saying this, inside of the fish. So wait a second. He's saying, you answered my prayers. You listened to my cry while he's in the fish. What, what, what's going on here? If you're like me, I tend to imagine like that Jonah's writing this song after the fact, like after he's nice and warm and dry, sitting in a wingback chair with a silk robe by a crackling fire, writing his journal for wisdom for his grandchildren, right? That's not what's happening here. The man is inside of a fish, and he's playing, claiming that God is answering his prayers. How in the world does that make sense? Well, that does, I think it can make sense, and we have an answer. But in order to get to that, we're going to have to wade through Jonah's description of his worst nightmare. So let's look at chapter 2, verse 3. You hurled me into the depths into the very heart of the seas. And the current swirled around me. All your waves and your breakers, they swept over me. I said, I've been banished from your sight. Yet I will look again towards your holy temple. The engulfing waters threatened me. The deep surrounded me. Seaweed was wrapped around my head. To the roots of the mountains I sank down. The earth beneath me barred me in forever. Jonah is describing his rock bottom moment. It's not just metaphorically the bottom for him. It's actually like down deep at the bottom, like deep in the water. And the fear that he's describing, I'm suggesting, is the fear that came from being thrown into the water and sinking lower and lower into the water to his certain death. And can you imagine how terrifying that would be? The language that he's using, he talks about it like he's sinking down into hell itself. That's the words he uses. And this downward motion has actually been a theme building throughout this book to now, where he goes down to the town of Joppa, then he goes down into the ship, and then he goes down below the deck of the ship, and then he's tossed down into the water, and then he sinks down into the depths of the ocean. And at this point, he's more terrified and certain of his death than he could have ever imagined. His sin and his rebellion have brought him to this terrible demise, and he knows this is 100% my fault. And then what happens next? Jonah chapter 2, verse 6, the second half of the verse says, But you, Lord my God, brought my life up from the pit. And so for the first time in this story, Jonah goes up. Instead of this ever-circling downward motion, he's going up. But how is he going up? Well, again, it'd be easy to think that up is somehow him escaping this situation, like getting on to dry land. But that can't be, right? He's saying this prayer from inside of the fish. So now I think we can see the role that this fish was intended to play in the first place. What we have to come to realize is that amazingly, somehow, Jonah saw this fish as a merciful act of God that saved him from drowning. It's unlikely at this point, as he's writing this, that he has any idea that in three days he's going to be spit out by this fish on a dry land. But apparently, he thinks it's a merciful alternative to be in that fish compared to what he was experiencing. He sees this fish's belly as a mercy, as a rescue. That's pretty amazing. He thought that compared to drowning this fish's stomach, was easier to stomach. Pun intended, okay? Told you, there's more of them, okay. But seriously, this is an incredible turn of events. But here's the thing, we can't miss the fact that while this fish was a mercy, the fish was also a form of discipline. Jonah is apparently feeling pretty good about his accommodations right now, but don't forget that God could have chosen to save Jonah from drowning any way he wanted. He was already doing a miracle. He could have sent sent a, a cruise ship, He could have sent a submarine. He could have sent a Baywatch lifeguard. He he literally could have done anything he wanted, but he didn't. He sent a smelly, dark, terrifying, huge fish. But Jonah saw it for what it was it was desperately needed, merciful discipline. And then the prayer, it kind of ends with this change of heart, kind of. Let's check it out in verse 8. It says this Those who cling to worthless idols, turn away from God's love for them. But I, with shouts of grateful praise, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will make good. I will say, salvation comes from the Lord. So in verse 8, he kind of reprimands those who are foolish, and they turn and run from God. (coughs) Jonah, that's you. But anyway, he's like, okay, I'm done with that. I'm done with that. I've learned my lesson. I will obey. I will follow God. Which, wow, that's a pretty big change of heart, right? Because in the last chapter, he was running hard and fast in the opposite direction of where God wanted him to go. But now his rock-bottom experience has done something to him. It's left him changed. Jonah repents of his sin. What sin is that? He needed to repent for the sin of rebellion. He had chosen to go against God's plan. He's recognizing, I should not have done that. And this prayer is him relenting, his giving up of that rebellion, and that's a good thing, right? I mean, we would think that the rest of the story is gonna go better for Jonah for the rest of it, right? Well, kinda, but not really, because the problem isn't really solved. He only kinda repented. Notice he's not repenting of the heart issue that caused him to run from God in the first place. All he's repenting for is having run from God. But that running, it was always just a symptom. That was not the cause. And so don't think for a second that God misses that nuance. God is not even close to being done working on Jonah. And chapter four is when we're going to get to see God taking a closer look at that root issue. And Drew will walk us through that in just a couple weeks. But guys, that's it. (laughs) That's all of chapter two. We made it through the storyline that we needed to cover. And as a chapter, it's pretty simple, right? God disciplines Jonah and he repents. But remember, we were looking for things that had implications for our everyday life, some big lessons, right? So let me explain the ones, the ones that I noticed, and I'd love to hear what you found. Maybe you're sharing them in your group this week. And um, here's some things that I think we need to catch, pun intended. You guys, that's really funny. <laughs> Whatever. Okay. Things to catch about God as a discipliner. God is the one enacting discipline. And remember, this is something we said last week. The first thing is that God pursues us to win us back, not to pay us back. This series is all about God's relentless mercy to Jonah and by extension to us. And as we talk about God's discipline, we have to come to see his discipline as actually a form of his mercy because he wants nothing more than for us to be on the path that leads to life. And if discipline is what it takes to win us back, then God is going to do what he must. So in that sense, I think it's important to understand this principle from this chapter, that God is thorough in his discipline. God is thorough in his discipline. There is no question what caused Jonah's hard circumstances. This is not some big mystery where Jonah is like searching the heavens for an answer to the question. He knows exactly why the storm came and why the fish came because he sinned. He rebelled. So God does what God needs to do in order to win his son back. He disciplines him. And I think we can all kind of get on board at this basic level that bad things end up having consequences in life. But I think that we can also probably agree that Jonah probably learned his lesson like 0.2 seconds after he started sinking into the water, right? I mean, that poem doesn't seem like he was too thrilled. He's terrified as he bumps against death's doorstep. This guy was fully aware of the pain that rebellion brings immediately after he hit that water. And so if you're God, and you're the parent in this situation, if you see that Jonah has learned his lesson as he's sinking into the water, what would you send to save his life? What would you send as the merciful means by which your servant would live? if it's me and I'm thinking about my son, I would have probably, because I don't understand all of what my son needs, I probably would have sent something soothing or gentle or easy. Maybe at least just like a port key that would automatically transport him to Nineveh for all you Harry Potter fans. Okay. Read the books. You'll get it. Okay. But I might've been tempted to say like, okay, okay. He's learned his lesson. It's all good. But that's not what God does. And I'm not trying to make God seem vindictive here at all. But what God does is send a fish. That is an inelegant solution to this problem. God allows his discipline to continue in how he rescues Jonah from the situation. And he even makes him stay in there for three days. He's being thorough, extremely thorough in his discipline. And it could definitely seem like this was just an extra layer of unnecessary frustration that Jonah just did not need at this phase of his life. But God is the one who knows Jonah's heart. He knows the stubbornness that's there, how he needs something a little bit extra to make sure that this lesson sticks. So he refuses to relent too early. He is being thorough. And here's the thing for us. There are inevitably circumstances that come into our lives that are the direct result of our unwise decisions, if you're anything like me. Hardships are that are of our own making. And if if you're like me, sometimes we tend to say like, okay God, I got it. (laughs) Like lesson learned, moving on, can't we just put this behind us? But here's the thing with our thorough God. He doesn't always relent when we cry uncle. He's working to refine us, and sometimes the pressure stays on longer than we ultimately think it needs to. While we're experiencing the pain of our consequences, we're usually just trying to make the pain stop, make the discipline stop, but God has a different goal. He's working to refine you. God is trying to reach you, and once we acknowledge that like this pain is my fault, we think this box has been checked, time to move on. But God wasn't trying to get us to admit the problem. He's trying to win over our hearts. Now, sometimes we don't even know the depth of the problem. We think we're good to go, but God knows there's more refining yet to do. So something I think we need to do is to change our perspective on situations like this. When we're feeling the pain of our sin, don't blame God. Look for what he's trying to do in you. Honestly evaluate it. Search your heart and your motives. Ask for some input from people around you. We're usually the last people to see this kind of stuff in our own life. Talk to your community group. Because we so often lash out at God and we eventually point the finger at God, assuming that really ultimately this is his fault and he's a jerk for bringing this into my life. But I think what we need to do is we need to get to these moments of self inflicted pain and don't point the finger at God. Look for the hand of God. Don't point the finger at God. Look for the hand of God. Because God has an objective. And he wasn't going to let Jonah off the hook until that goal was met. And when we've caused problems in our life, we've got to learn to stop turning to God in our anger and instead turn to him in humility, to look inward and search for the hand of God in our hearts, to look and see what he's trying to help us see. I love what the writer of Hebrews says, In the New Testament, this is thousands of years later, but look what it says in Hebrews 12, verse five. It says, and have you completely forgotten this word of encouragement that addresses you as a father addresses his son? It says, so we've got a word of encouragement from a father to a son. Man, he's saying, have you forgotten this? This is gonna be great. What does it say? My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline and do not lose heart when he rebukes you Because the Lord disciplines the one he loves, and he chastens everyone he accepts as his son. Endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as his children. For what children are not disciplined by their father? Well, that was not the encouragement I was expecting. All right? But do you see what he's saying? The author is asking us to look for God's hand in the midst of discipline. No father allows their child to blindly continue down a path of self-destructive behavior. And all sin is self-destructive behavior. So is it fun to discipline? No, it's not fun to discipline. Is it fun to be disciplined? Of course it's not fun. Why would it be fun? The author even anticipates this in Hebrews 12, just a couple verses later in verse 11. He says, no discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. So yeah, it stinks. We all know that. But God's got something he's working on in you during it. So don't be afraid to just sit in the pain for a little bit, to embrace the difficulty of the season, and allow it to refine you. Don't point your finger at God. Look for the hand of God. He refuses to leave you where you are. He is at work in your pain. Now, I need to make a disclaimer here. Our pain is not always our fault. Don't assume that if something bad is happening in your life that it's automatically some form of cosmic punishment for something you did. There are other kinds of consequences in life. Your pain might just be because you're living in a broken world and it's broken. And so it causes pain. Or it could be the consequence of someone else's sin in your life. Sin's consequences never stop with one person. They always spread. So here's the perspective that I think we have to have in that situation. Your pain might not be because of your sin. But God wants to use it to rid you of your sin. Your pain might not be because of your sin, but God will want to use it to rid you of sin. It might be directly because of someone else's wrongdoing, but it doesn't mean God doesn't have something. He's trying to work in your heart through it. All pain has a purpose. So that's what we needed to catch in regards to God as a discipliner. And these last three points are just things I think we need to catch about Jonah's response that we can learn to our response to God as he disciplines us at times. And the first thing is that, that we should notice is that Jonah cries out to God. This is a bit of a small point, but I do think it's worth noticing. Notice what happens. Even though Jonah is intentionally running from God, when the going gets tough, he turns back to God. And isn't that how we tend to respond? So many people find themselves, I've been here, where we're running hard and fast away from God toward a relationship, or a substance, or a feeling, or some kind of an achievement. And when that thing inevitably eludes us, or it fails us, we don't find ourselves crying out to that thing. People don't cry out in desperation to their vice to save them. We intuitively know that that thing that we want can't save us. We eventually come to realize that that thing, that's the problem. That's not the solution. And so we end up turning inevitably back to God. And so just as a suggestion, if we're going to end up there eventually, why not start there? We might save ourselves a little bit of pain. Another thing to notice is that Jonah knows the Bible. This is kind of another small point, but I think it bears noticing. When Jonah is at his lowest, running from God, what words come pouring out of him? Amazingly, The words that come out of him are the words of scripture that he had memorized. And I say memorized because I'm assuming we have no evidence from the text that he had any access to charging devices during that storm. So his iPhone had probably died. (laughs) He quotes the Psalms. His whole prayer is just rephrasing these Psalms. And I think there's a lesson in there for us. Sometimes our investment in God's word can seem pointless in certain seasons. But I promise you, all it takes is the right circumstances and you will find that the years that you've put into God's word will come back to support you when you need it most. Do not neglect that resource. And so then my final thought is this. You can't be in deeper than Jonah was. And I want this to be a word of hope for all of us here today who are runners. You simply can't be in deeper than Jonah was. And I say that, first of all, because I'm assuming no one is listening from the bottom of the ocean today, but also because this guy had heard the voice of God directly, and he stubbornly and directly disobeyed. He was the professional mouthpiece of God for the nation of Israel, and he completely refused to obey. And in that moment, how does he say it? He says, God heard his cry from the doorsteps of hell. God answers his cry for mercy from the brink of destruction. So do not believe the lie that helps you believing that whatever you've done makes you unlovable to God because you can't outrun God. You can't go too far. You can't have too much rebellion. Our God's mercy is relentless. Yes, his discipline is thorough, but his acceptance is unconditional. So cry out to him. Run back to him Run to him, in fact, as hard as you ran away from him years ago. And amazingly, like an enemy being embraced as a member of the family, receive the mercy that our relentlessly merciful Father wants to give. Because this week, we've seen a story of discipline. But it's ultimately a story of repentance and forgiveness. This chapter contains a ridiculous miracle. And it's not the one you're thinking of. What God did inside of that fish is nothing. It's child's play compared to the miracle that he is performing inside of Jonah's heart. And that is the miracle of repentance, of forgiveness, and of life change that he wants to work in your heart and in my heart as well. So run back to our relentlessly merciful Father who is at work through his thorough discipline and his deep, deep love to always, always bring us back to himself. Let's pray. God, we're so grateful that you're willing to show tough love, that your discipline comes into our life ultimately to bring us back to yourself. And I ask that we would have the humility rather than pointing at you, accusing you of the problem, accusing you of hatred, accusing you of being a jerk, that we would look for your guiding hand, your influencing love and your mercy, which is always pulling us closer and closer to you, that we would lean in to your deep, deep love. In Jesus' name.